This morning we read from Holy Scripture, Acts chapter 26, Acts 26. This chapter essentially is Paul's defense and explanation of his ministry before King Agrippa when he was captured. And our interest really is in that. Paul's own words, an explanation of what he taught and how he taught it. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth a hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among my known nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify that after the most straightest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our twelve tribes, instantly serving God day and night, hope to come, for which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews." Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them, and I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. 
Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, Thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then King then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. And when he had thus spoken, The king rose up, and the governor, and Bernice, and they that sat with them. And when they were gone aside, they talked between themselves, saying, This man doeth nothing worthy of death or of bonds. Then said Agrippa unto Festus, This man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed unto Caesar. We read that far in God's holy word. And this morning, we consider question and answer 56 of Lord's Day 21. Lord's Day 21, question and answer 56. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, the subject matter of this particular question and answer is of great importance to our salvation, both the knowledge and experience of that salvation. And the subject matter here is essentially what we call theologically justification by faith. We may distinguish between justification by faith and the forgiveness of sins. They are not exactly the same. Justification is a broader term and includes the forgiveness of sins. 
And the broader nature of justification is brought out here in this particular question and answer when it includes what is called the forgiveness of sins elsewhere, the remission of sins, and the other great aspect of justification, which is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Those are brought together. Elsewhere they are distinguished For example, in the Belgian Confession, Lord's Day 23, there it says that the righteousness that is imputed to us is implied by the forgiveness, showing how closely related these things are and why we may say also when treating even the forgiveness of sins that we are treating essentially justification by faith alone. I said this truth is important. No doubt you have heard before the great words of the Reformers and what they thought about it, how the Reformers considered that truth to be both the hinge upon which the church turns and its doctrinal foundation, the importance of this particular subject is pointed out in the Belgic Confession, when it even says our salvation consists in the forgiveness of sins. Even though the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism make clear our salvation consists also in other acts of God saving us, nevertheless, at places, our whole salvation is summarized as forgiveness. Besides that, as to the importance, we can simply consider what we would have if we did not have the forgiveness of sins. Without the forgiveness of sins, we stand before God condemned to eternal damnation. It is the basis of every other aspect of salvation and every other blessing that we received in our salvation. And simply think for a brief moment about how this subject, how frequently it is treated throughout the Holy Scriptures, both in the Old and New Testament, entire psalms devoted to the subject, and entire chapters in Scripture, entire books even, pertain to this subject. And yet, this morning, I have no intention on covering every single aspect that pertains to that particular subject, which is also the intention of the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism does not expect its explanation of that truth to be the final word or the entire word on this subject. The Catechism makes that clear by its rather brief treatment here, a subject that entire chapters and books of Scripture are written on, where there are numerous articles in the Belgic Confession on the subject. It treats only briefly and then puts it as one important part with two other important parts of one Lord's Day. Now that wasn't done so that the authors of the Catechism or those who divided it into 52 parts could make it possible for us to complete preaching of it in 52 Lord's Days or because it considered the subject unimportant 
It did so for a couple of reasons. First of all, it did not need an extensive treatment here in this Lord's Day because the subject is treated throughout the Heidelberg Catechism. Think only of the first Lord's Day on our comfort. The subject of the forgiveness of sins come up. Then think of the next three Lord's Days, 2, 3, and 4, on our misery. How can you talk about sins and our misery without talking about the forgiveness of sins or bringing it up? So it's implied there. Go to the next two Lord's Days, 5 and 6, on satisfaction and redemption. It's all about the forgiveness of sins. You can jump ahead a little bit and consider the fact that it's going to treat the forgiveness of sins under the heading of the suffering and death of Jesus Christ as expounded in the Apostles' Creed. The subject of the forgiveness of sins is going to come up again in Lord's Day 32, which is about justification by faith. Then think of the next Lord's Days on the treatment of the law of God. The law of God is all about the forgiveness of sins, at least as it's treated in the Heidelberg Catechism. Then jump ahead again. You get to the Lord's Prayer, and there's an entire petition. The fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There it is again. So the Catechism doesn't need to treat it extensively, and we may not see what's said here either as the final or exhaustive word on the subject. Besides that, the Catechism wanted to emphasize something that we also will be bringing up this morning, which is the connection between the forgiveness of sins and the other articles of the Creed. On the one hand, it is interesting and important that the forgiveness of sins is really the one aspect of salvation that we experience and receive in this life. There are others that could be mentioned, but they're omitted. Regeneration, the giving of faith, sanctification, it's all not mentioned. Showing you the importance of the forgiveness of sins with regard to our salvation. But more importantly is its connection to the church, the subject of the church, and the subject of the communion of the saints. There's a relationship here, as well as the following article on the resurrection of the body. This stands as a pivot point. It's related to them all, so the Catechism wants to emphasize that. Consider with me this morning the subject, the forgiveness of sins. We're going to look at first the act, and secondly the means, and then finally the recipient of the forgiveness of sins. We notice in the first place that the forgiveness of sins is a saving act of God, even a saving act of the triune God that He performs with regard to you and with me. Emphasis upon me. Notice again, the confession here isn't simply about the forgiveness of sins in general or in the abstract. It doesn't simply mean to imply that there is in the church some sort of vague confession of forgiveness of sins but it's with regard to me. What do you believe about it? And what does that concern you? And so we must remember that as we consider this this morning. This is a basic and essential act of God with regard to our salvation. And an act of God even the Pharisees pointed out to Jesus, and rightly so, 
that only God can forgive sins, something we need to be reminded of even when we forgive the sins of others. When we forgive the sins of others, we can forgive only what God would forgive. And then we can only forgive by praying that He forgive. Otherwise, our words, I forgive you, are worthless and meaningless. Perhaps even blasphemous if we would forgive what God Himself does not forgive. The emphasis of the Catechism in mentioning this one great act of God independently or separately from the others should not be misunderstood. It has been misunderstood in the Protestant Reformed churches before. They take the fact that the Apostles' Creed basically ignores every other element of salvation and combines it with a statement in the Belgian Confession that says our salvation consists in the remission of sins to teach or to say that that is the entirety of our salvation. So that if one would call sanctification an act of God saving us or an element of salvation, they would cry foul. Not only is that not true, but it's extremely dangerous and harmful. And then, because it would imply that other elements of our salvation, if not the act of God, are our work. But they are not. As is noted in the meditation, Herman Huxma notes that one could easily insert all the other elements of salvation in the Heidelberg Catechism or the Confession or the Apostles' Creed here. But they're not, which is important. The importance is not this is the only element of our salvation, but it is teaching, which is the same thing that's being taught in the Belgian Confession when it says our salvation consists in the remission of sins, that it's basic, basic to all the other elements of salvation. And it's basic because it stands as the ground, stands as the ground for all the other elements. You can go on to the Belgian Confession and it explains it, that sanctification cannot occur unless God first justifies us, makes that very, very clear. Also makes clear that the one necessarily follows the other so that you cannot have the forgiveness of sins without the actual saving of us from the power of sin. But be that as it may, let's take note that this is an act of God, a saving act of God. And it's worth also noting, like all the acts of salvation, it's not a work that's exclusively of the Son. Here too we can make a mistake. The Son, of course, stands prominent in the forgiveness of sins because, as we learn here in the Catechism, one element of the forgiveness of sins is that God imputes to me the righteousness of His Son, Christ. And we all know, I think even the little children here know, that the basis for the forgiveness of sins, in other words, why does God forgive my sins, is because Christ was slain for those sins. The basis for justification is the atonement, which 
is also worth mentioning because we can also confuse the atonement or redemption with the forgiveness of sins itself. But again, Scripture and the creeds distinguish, and rightly so. Strictly speaking, the atonement, the paying of the price for my sins, happened at the cross and stands as the basis for the forgiveness of sins. Christ forgives your sins and my sins on the basis, or the reason is, because of Christ done. But we can also make a mistake by thinking to ourselves, well, only that person of the Trinity is working exclusively in this great act. No, it's not. And it's amazing how when one looks at the totality of this teaching in Scripture, all the persons in one way or another are mentioned. For example, justification by faith is located in the Holy Scriptures and the creeds, I believe, in an eternal act of God which is usually associated with the Father. The idea is that the Father, underlying even what happens to us in time, is that the Father chose His Son, determined that Christ, His Son, would be the head of a body, and elected that body. See there the connection to the church? You see there why the forgiveness of sins is connected to the church even there? Because you can locate the forgiveness of sins and the eternal election of the church in Christ Jesus. And along with that then, even what the Bible or what theologians call eternal justification. That in the mind of God, Christ was slain from before the foundation of the world. But the emphasis there is not that there's this separate justification or it must be worked against justification by faith and time, that they stand opposed or at odds to each other or exclusive to one another, but the emphasis is upon the work of the Father, the person of the Father. And then, of course, there's the person of the Son, which I just explained. But don't forget the great work of the Spirit. If you want to ask why this particular article is combined in the other two in this Lord's Day, along with the other two things, part of the answer is because the Catechism wants to instruct us that this is especially the work of the Spirit. Forgiveness of sins isn't exclusively the work of the Son, but the work of His Spirit. The same Spirit by which Christ gathers, defends, and preserves His church. The same Spirit by which there is communion of saints. By the same Spirit, there is the forgiveness of sins. The idea, besides the fact that if you ask yourself, how is it that the Son came into this world? And the answer is by a conception of the Holy Spirit, by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you ask yourself who it was that sustained the Son on the cross as He's atoning for our sins, the answer is the Spirit. By what great power did the Christ arise from the grave? which also is called justification, it was by the Spirit. And so when we talk about the forgiveness of sins, one greatly overlooked aspect of it is what exactly are we talking about? And what we're talking about is the subjective application of what Christ did. Here it's worth a pause to take note that the Bible speaks of the forgiveness of sins and justification by faith in a, a number of different senses. 
has a number of different applications. There are times when the Scripture emphasizes what we call eternal justification, the forgiveness of my sins as an eternal act of God. And then, don't forget, it's not even so much that this was done before the foundation of the world, which is true with regard to election too, but God is an eternal God, and there's an eternal act of God. Even as there's an eternal begetting of God, there's an eternal forgiving of my sins. God is the I Am. He lives in the presence. All time. But the Scriptures emphasize what we call objective justification, or the objective forgiveness of sins. And what do we mean by that? There, what we're talking about, to put it more closely, is the atonement or justification. Shouldn't be confused, but from time to time, in Scripture and the Confessions, those things are closely tied together. And what it's referring to is the fact that in the past, Christ came, suffered on the cross, and paid for all of our sins. And God said, they're forgiven. It's what Christ meant when He said, it is finished. They've been paid for. And He was dead. But then the Scriptures call what we talk about what we call subjective justification. This isn't the end of it either, by the way. You also find the Scriptures and creeds, even the passages that we read, using the future tense. There's a sense in which we are justified in the future. Think, for example, of the day that we all stand before God in the judgment. And we're going to hear Him forgive our sins. Your sins are forgiven. Nevertheless, the emphasis here, and the emphasis often, most often in Scripture, is what we call subjective application. Well, what is that? It's simply this. It's the work of the Holy Spirit especially the work of the Holy Spirit, taking the forgiveness of sins in Christ, that which Christ did, that which occurred outside of me, objectively, in the past, and applying it now to me, so that I consciously know it, so that I consciously believe it, and so I consciously am assured of it. That has to happen. Otherwise, what Christ did is simply an abstraction. It's an unknown to me. The great question, the great question of faith is, am I forgiven? And that's the emphasis here. The great work of the Spirit bringing to my conscience so that I can confess what's found here in this Lord's Day. That I have my sins forgiven. And I have had imputed to me the righteousness of Christ. Now, catechism makes clear that there's basically two parts to this. Sometimes, as I've said in the creeds, there's an emphasis upon only one of the parts, one or the other, but we should always be reminded that there's two parts here to forgiveness of sins, or more clearly, justification by faith. The first is strictly speaking what we call the forgiveness of sins most often, which is that God will, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I struggle all my life long. That's part one. Might seem a rather strange expression, but it's a wonderful one. 
that the forgiveness of sins is God will not remember my sins. That's right out of Scripture, which actually, which actually connects those two phrases. If you look up Jeremiah 31, verse 34, you're going to read this. I will forgive their iniquity. Yeah, there's a future tense. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. And the idea of the and there is not those are two distinct acts, but they're one and the same. And our fathers incorporate them right here in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's God's not remembering my sins no more. Now, I said that's an amazing, quite shocking expression because we all know who God is. Can God forget? God is the all-seeing God, the all-knowing God. Is it the case that God doesn't remember the fact that I'm a sinner anymore? Maybe this is due to the fact that somehow we've hidden our sins. Or we've been successful in making God forget them somehow. But that's a shocking statement that is made to emphasize something. And that is the impossibility of the forgiveness of sins apart from God's grace and God doing what He's done. Because even the children could ask themselves, how is the God who remembers all and knows all and sees all forget something? That's what remember no more means. They're forgotten. They're put behind me. What's in the past is in the past. And there's something there about the forgiveness even of one another. When we forgive one another, we must reflect that. When we truly forgive someone, it means we remember their sins no more. Now, with God specifically now, what does that mean? Does it mean that God has forgotten now that we are sinners? Does it mean that when I sin, God does not see that as sin as such? He looks at it and says, I see nothing? No. No, as is explained elsewhere in many places, the idea is that God remembers no more that there is any penalty due for those sins. God sees sin a different way than you and I see sin. When God sees sin, He immediately rises up in anger and wrath against it to destroy both sin and the sinner. There's a payment due. There's justice that needs to be satisfied. And the idea that God remembers my sin no more is that when He looks at that sin, He immediately sees it in Christ. He immediately sees it through that lens. And He goes, paid. That sin is paid in full. It's now forgotten. It's not remembered anymore. Notice also what God doesn't remember. That's another thing that just serves to emphasize the grace of it all. That grace is emphasized, as I said in the first place, by God not remembering when we know full well God remembers. And the second thing is that He doesn't remember my corrupt nature. Even us. How can we forget our corrupt nature? We do sometime. We need to be reminded of how corrupt we are, which is why we have Lord's Days 2 through 4. But God forgets my corrupt nature. God forgets our depravity. God forgets who we are by nature. That is an equally amazing statement that's worth remembering time and time again. And don't forget, that echoes what we're taught elsewhere in the Creed, that God forgives 
not only our sins, but our corrupt nature. We have to be forgiven our sins, not only the actual sins that we have, but we need to be delivered and thus forgiven also the fact that we are corrupt. We're born corrupt. We minimize and forget that. God does it, not automatically. Does it in the same way that He doesn't remember our sins. So He forgives. He forgets, in other words, our corrupt nature. And then notice the phrase worth pointing out, against which I have to struggle my whole life long. Now why is that brought up? It's brought up, number one, as a reality check, so that we as forgiven sinners don't have the notion, well, I'm forgiven once, and that's it. Or I'm forgiven in such a way that my corrupt nature somehow disappears, that in sanctification my corrupt nature just is gone, or it's not a struggle anymore. No. The same people that are forgiven, whose sins God doesn't remember, are the same people who have to struggle against their corrupt nature their whole life long. And that implies something, something that was emphasized in the quote from Calvin, go, go read it, about how there is a continual need, therefore, for us to be forgiven. Again, for us, for us to know we are forgiven, for the Spirit to subjectively apply to my conscience and heart that I am forgiven. It's a continual thing because I have to struggle against my corrupt nature. And so I need to be reminded again and again and again and again and again. My sins are forgiven. And God doesn't remember them. Now that's part one. There's another part. And it's hard to explain. I could use a number of figures. I'll use one that I use often in catechism. It's like all figures has its ends and its limits, but bear with me. If you can think of your sins as digging a big, huge, deep hole, every time we sin, we dig a huge, huge, huge pit, almost a bottomless pit of sin. And the forgiveness of sins fills that hole back in. Fills the hole back in. That's the forgiveness of sins. But there's another side, you see. Because God demands something of me. It's just not that I cannot stand in the presence of God as a sinner, but God must forgive my sins. But I must stand before God as righteous. That's slightly different, which is why the creeds emphasize it. Why the Belgian Confession, Article 23, says the forgiveness of sins implies something. You see, every time we read the law, the law reminds me not only that I'm a sinner, but I'm a sinner because I have not given God that which I owe Him. What I owe Him is my entire life. What I owe Him is perfect obedience. What I owe Him is complete and utter obedience to the divine law. Forgiveness of sins doesn't take away that requirement. That doesn't just disappear. That doesn't vanish up into smoke. God, as it were, may fill the hole of our sins, forgive them all, so we have a blank slate, as it were. But God still says, now where is the obedience? So you're not a sinner, but where is the obedience? Where is the righteousness that I demand? Well, the problem is, not only do I not have what's necessary to pay for my sins, my life can't pay for that, 
I can't fill that hole. I can't present anything to God. My works have no part in that whatsoever. But I can't present to God anything that I did because that too is not perfection. And so the second part is always the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. What God does in this part of the forgiveness of sins or justification is He takes the perfect obedience of Christ. He takes what Christ did, His righteousness, His perfect fulfillment of everything that God demands of a man, of you and of me. And God says it's yours. He declares that it's yours. Again, the importance here of understanding it's not like God puts that in me. Oh, He does later on. It's called sanctification. But when we're talking the forgiveness of sins, it's a declaration. It's something about what God says. God speaks these things. Whenever we talk about the forgiveness, it's the declaration of God saying, I forgive you. I don't remember your sins anymore. And so also God says, and you're righteous. You're not righteous in yourself. You're righteous because I give over to your account. I impute to you. I declare that the righteousness of Christ is your own. As if you yourself had perfectly satisfied for all your sins and done everything that I require. That's what it means. That's what it means when it says that God will graciously impute, God will graciously declare, sign over to my account the righteousness of Christ, and the result is that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. That includes now, that includes in the past, that includes in the future. Never. When God forgives my sins now, He forgives my sins in the future. And that's all a part of this great act of God. Now, what I want to emphasize next means means. In fact, this is one of the things that's especially emphasized by locating this article in this Lord's Day and prior to the other articles. And I may be somewhat brief here because we've already talked about it. The means, the primary means, the essential means, the means without which there are no other means, is the Holy Spirit. This is where the work of the Holy Spirit shines. This is where the Holy Spirit is set forth for us to gaze at and to wonder at. Don't ever forget that. Sometimes that's minimized when, when people want to isolate justification or the forgiveness of sins only to what Christ did objectively. The problem with that is often the Spirit is shorted. The Spirit is dismissed. The Spirit is forgotten. But Christ is pleased, God is pleased to impart, to impute, to bring to our remembrance that God remembers no more all these things by the Spirit. It's one thing for Christ to forgive my sins in eternity. It's one thing for Christ to forgive my sins on the cross, for God to forgive my sins. But it's an entirely different matter for me now, who was born dead in trespasses and sins, born without any saving knowledge of God whatsoever, born truly depraved, without any right knowledge of God, now to know this. This is why when justification is emphasized in Scripture, 
it's emphasized as justification by faith. And the emphasis of that isn't justification by you, even though that faith is yours, and the result of it is that you will confess it, but the emphasis is upon the Holy Spirit. Where did you get that faith? Who gave you that faith? Who imparts that faith? Who works that faith? And then as to what faith believes and what confesses, who works that? How does that happen? And the answer is the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And that's why, too, time and time again, justification by faith, the forgiveness of sins is taught over and over and over again. That's why just a little bit it's going to be taught again. And why the Lord makes it part of His prayer, praying for the forgiveness of sins. Eternal justification doesn't take that away. The fact that I'm forgiven, or the basis of my forgiven, to be even more precise, is at the cross of Jesus Christ, doesn't take that away in the least. In fact, it demands it, it emphasizes it. And it has to do also with the work of the Spirit. The Spirit is continually working this. And you know that from your own experience, do you not? You can go away from church, perhaps partaking of the sacrament, with a renewed joy and thrill over the forgiveness of sins that was pronounced to you, only to quickly fall into some sort of depression and doubt and despair due to some sin, some weakness, some failure. And God again brings to you, in His way, through the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins anew. Now what we must also understand is the Holy Spirit, who is the primary agent in means here, He Himself uses means. God is pleased to have the Holy Spirit use means. Again, that is why this article is connected to the two previous ones. It's also connected to the following one. How can one be assured of the resurrection of the body? And the answer is because one is assured and knows the forgiveness of sins. You see, it necessarily follows. If God has forgiven my sins and remembers them no more, so that I can never be condemned before the tribunal of God, then even though I am dead and in the grave and my body has rotted to dust, I will be raised. Why? Because of the nature of the forgiveness of sins. But the emphasis in this Lord's Day is on the other means the Holy Spirit uses to work the forgiveness of sins. And primarily, the fact that the Holy Spirit is pleased to use the church. Right here, we might say, who knows their sins are forgiven? Whose sins are forgiven? And the answer is, only those who are members of the church. Only those who are united to Christ by a true faith. Only those who are members of His body. The elect, if you will. It really doesn't matter how you put it. The answer is, first of all, the recipient can only be a member of the church. That's why the Belgian Confession can be so bold and to say there's no salvation outside of the church. None. None whatsoever. And that has to do partly with the fact that it can only be received by faith. And if you're given faith, you're united to Christ. But don't forget also that it has to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit actually uses the church 
to speak the word of God that our sins are forgiven. You see, when you emphasize justification, you're referring to what God speaks, what he says, what he declares. And what he speaks and says and declares, not to himself, but outside of himself, to the forgiven. It is God saying, your sins are forgiven. I impute to you the righteousness of Christ. That's the forgiveness of sins. And now if you ask yourself, how does God do that? Where does God do that? Where does God say to me these things? And the answer is, in the church. Not only because it's only spoken directly to those who are members of the church. Only members of the church know their sins are forgiven but because of who God uses to speak it. And that primarily is the minister. It's declared in the preaching of the gospel. Again, I will be brief because we can return to that this evening. Why is it that the Scripture and creeds emphasize the fact that no one may just make themselves a minister and declare themselves a minister? Why the emphasis upon the lawful calling of a minister and the lawful sending of a minister? And the answer is because God is pleased to declare our sins are forgiven through the preaching of the gospel. And then notice also, not simply preaching about forgiveness of sins. I, as your pastor, have to be reminded of that from time to time again. Simply preaching the truth of justification as it pertains broadly to the elect, or simply preaching the truth that justification is this way and not that way. It's without works. It's by faith. It's located in God eternally, etc., etc. That is not, per se, the forgiveness of sins. True preaching of the gospel declares the forgiveness of sins, and then doesn't declare it for all and to all. That would be a faithless preacher. Paul didn't do that, and no preacher today may declare to all and sundry, even to all who hear the word, even to all in this location, your sins are forgiven. Number one, I don't know that. Number two, God doesn't allow us to do that. God doesn't forgive the sins of all. At the cross, God didn't forgive the sins of all. And so the preacher may declare that. That's a false statement. That's a lie. It immediately makes salvation conditional. It immediately makes forgiveness conditional. It immediately makes faith your work upon which your forgiveness depends. And that's not the truth. The forgiveness of sins is declared in such a way, though, that every child of God who has faith knows that their sins are forgiven. And we must remember that, the importance of this. And maybe you know that from experience too. It's one thing when I forgive you and you forgive me. There's a reflection of God's forgiveness of us in that and when we do that. But ultimately, I can't forgive your sins and you can't forgive mine. There's a reflection of what God does and the fact that we declare it. That's best. We don't just assume it. We don't just say, well, I, I, I think they know that. I forgive them. Tell them. Just like God does. God doesn't assume we just know it. He repeats it over and over again. He even puts it in the sign of the sacrament so we're assured of it. But it comes down to God doing that. And God does that through the preaching of the gospel. 
to His Word. And again, this shouldn't surprise us. <laughs> Should it surprise us that God, who worked justification, who worked our forgiveness, that is the basis of it in the atonement and the satisfaction of it, of our sins by the perfect sacrifice of the Word incarnate, that He would now impart that, bring it to our consciousness, cause us to know it through the spoken Word. Working both faith and the forgiveness of sins through hearing. Amazing thing. So the Spirit Himself uses means. We call them the means of grace. It's worth pointing out the fallacy of forgiveness for all, or even the wrongness, the heretical nature of pronouncing the forgiveness of sins upon all, is brought out in the fact that among the means of grace you have discipline. And even when Christ set that forth, Christ did not tell the church, you tell everyone their sins are forgiven because that's the way it is. No. But whoever sins ye remit, they are remitted. And whoever sins ye retain, they are retained. There are people whose sins are retained. And the church has the authority to say, your sins are not forgiven. We call that discipline. What's the basis for that? The fact that, in fact, not all sins are forgiven of all people, even all people who belong to the church. The recipient. The recipient is those who believe this by faith. The Heidelberg Catechism says, what do you believe? What do you believe? Not what you believe as a church. What do you believe as a denomination? What do you believe according to the Reformed faith? But what do you, gathered here, underneath the preaching of the Gospel, believe concerning the forgiveness of sins this morning? Do you know yourself to be a depraved sinner with a corrupt nature? And that you have to struggle against that nature all of your life? Do you know yourself to be one regardless of your life in church and your good works does not have the righteousness that can satisfy before God? You need the righteousness of another. Do you realize? Do you know? Are you aware? Do you believe with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength that there is no satisfaction, there is no forgiveness of your sins, there is no remembering of your sins no more, or the remembering no more of your corrupt nature unless God forgives your sins? Well, if you believe that, then you have faith. And Christ announces to you this morning through me that all your sins are forgiven. All of them. All of them freely and fully. All of them with nothing due. All of them with nothing to be added on your part. God declares you this morning righteous, as righteous as Christ Himself, because you are given, imputed to you as the righteousness of Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, we thank Thee that our sins are forgiven through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and we are given faith to believe that. We're thankful for this great work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and especially the Spirit applying it to us this morning. Help our unbelief.
these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.